0: If you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 11. Um, If you've been with us at all in the last month or so, this will be very familiar to you. Uh, This is where we're going to be again today. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. This is what it says. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said... This is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. So we're getting there slowly but surely. I think it would be the case. Week number five or possibly six on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We've chosen to go through this uh, slowly. The disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. The Son of God then lays out the model of all prayer, surely. So we're going to spend some time on this because prayer is important. And so before we get on to the verse we're going to look at today, I think it's good to recap uh, where we've been. What have we seen so far? What have we learned about the Lord's Prayer? Well, the first thing is, as we come to God to pray, Jesus seems to be saying, we need to recognise we come before our Holy Father And what that means we've looked at is that he's our father, so we're welcome, he's available to us. We come on the basis of relationship, not on the basis of performance. But at the same time, we mustn't forget, may your name be kept holy. He's holy. He's not some deadbeat dad. He's the God of heaven. He deserves our worship and he deserves our honour. That's the first thing. Second thing as we come, we therefore on the back of that make requests primarily for the advancement of his kingdom and the glory of his name. So we come to God and we're blown away by his uh, intimacy with us, his availability, but also his majesty as well. And we find ourselves crying out for him to be glorified first and foremost. That's the second thing. Thirdly, then, as Jonathan started looking at last week, then we start to make requests for ourselves. Uh, give us each day the food we need. Give us each day our daily bread, as many of you would know it. And uh, this is fine, this is appropriate, this is the right thing to do. It's uh, our physical needs, bread is a physical need I suppose, emotional needs, relational needs as well. Are we to come each day and ask God about these things and we should know this, our Father cares about them, that's important. And so today we get to verse 4, and uh, I want us just imagine at the start that we don't already know what's coming here, which is obviously impossible, you've seen it up there, we've let the cat out of the bag, and I think it would have been futile anyway, because most of us would know this. But almost what's happened now is, we've got to a point where the floodgates have now opened for requests for ourselves here. So we've, we've had the tone set. We know who we're, we're coming towards. We've, we've uh, called out for God's kingdom and his glory. You know? And then Jesus said, you know what? It's okay now to pray for things for yourself. First thing, give us each day the food we need. Well, brilliant. At last, I can start asking stuff for me. What on earth could be next? I don't know what you'd do with verse four. You know now Jesus is giving you permission to ask for things for yourself. What would you add to your basic needs as you come before God. How would you finish this prayer in verse four? Maybe, fulfill the desires of my heart, God. It's a good prayer, it's in the Bible in places. Maybe, uh, help me to achieve my dreams. May I swim with sharks before I die or eat at the fat duck or something. I don't know what it is for you, but what would you put at the end? Well, actually, the funny thing is, is that Jesus only encourages us to pray for one other thing really here. He says, right, it's okay to pray for yourselves. And I've got two prayers I want you to pray. One is for your daily needs. Give us each day the food we need. And the other is actually to save us from the ravages of sin. That's what Jesus tells us to pray. Just to... to Back up that, just to see see what I mean. In verse 4, there are two requests, actually. We're going to look at one today. Jonathan will look at another in a couple of weeks. But we see here, firstly, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, is uh, saying to God, look, basically, save us from the sins we've already committed in the past. And then you've got, don't let us yield to temptation. What that's saying is, save us from the sins we could commit in the future. Jesus' concern here is to save us from the awful effects of sin. Now, I don't know about you, I, that, that hit me as I looked at this. I find that remarkable, really. Of all the things we could pray for to our loving Father to supplement our basic needs, Jesus wants us to pray that we're kept safe from sin. That's the biggest thing on his agenda. And right at the start here, I think we've stumbled across a key message within this uh, prayer, we've we've stumbled across a few as we've gone along, we suddenly hit a theme or a message hidden in it. We've got another one, and that's this, that sin is a really big deal to God. That's what we see in this Psalm. Oh psalm, prayer even. So I say I want to ask the obvious question really. Why is sin such a big deal to God? Why does God think it's so important to escape its effects on our lives? And after we've done that, I would like to focus in on just this one uh, sin-related request. For, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, and before we do that, I, I want to just pray for us. Because I feel, I feel kind of a, a weight to this, which is not a weight of like, ooh. But there's a treasure in here, there's a blessing in here that we so often miss. In some churches, they, they would focus on, well, what does it mean to have a relationship with our Father? Well, it must mean, I'll get a nice new car, or I'll get the best house, or this is how it is. That must be how God thinks. No, no, God wants to bless you. And how does he want to bless you? He wants to bless you by saving you from the effects of your sin, past, present, future. So I want to pray that we get that blessing today, because uh, there will be some bits that are a little challenging but there's blessing and there's treasure here. Is that okay? I'm gonna pray. Lord God, I ask you, Lord, that the treasures that you've got in the the Lord's prayer would, would be unlocked for us today. I pray that we would go from this meeting today being able to thank you and praise you for your grace and your blessing. We will be able to see, Lord Jesus, the things you've got that are better than gold and better than diamonds. Lord, the wisdom in your word. And Lord Jesus, will we see it acted out in our lives, uh, Lord Jesus, by your grace and by your spirit and be able to truly say that God's given us more than we could ever have asked or imagined. Uh, Lord Jesus, unlock this in our hearts. Help us to listen well. Help me to speak this well this morning, Lord. Amen. Right, okay. Well, why then is sin such a big deal? Let's start with that question. Now, um, I've often heard it as an objection to Christianity, and you may have done too. (coughs) You've explained the Christian message to someone, and they say, but wait a minute, (coughs) if all my sins are forgiven by Jesus on the cross, past, present, future. I've got that bit, you've explained that to me. But doesn't that mean that you could just be a Christian and just keep on sinning and do what you want? I don't know, has anyone ever had anyone mention that to them before? It's a a few nods and it means probably you've explained the gospel quite well, so well done on that one, but it's still a valid objection. I think this objection comes to many of us actually a bit more personally, rather than from outside. We also think like this on occasion. I'm sure if you're a Christian here and you have been for any length of time, there have been times when you've tried to use your theological convictions about grace the fact we are saved by grace, not by what we do, to let you get away with sinning. We have, it's worth our hands up, I'm sure we've all tried that. I know I have. Some of us have actually done it. Some of us just try to think it through in that direction. Well, behind this objection and this strategy that we use, there is an underlying assumption that I don't know if you've ever thought of before. Because to think like that, the underlying assumption is that the best possible scenario would be one in which you can be a Christian, but you can keep on sinning. It's as if that's the best thing that could happen. It's like we're saying, there are benefits to Christianity that we quite like, you know, like relationship with God, being able to talk to him, being able to hear from him, getting to heaven at the end of the day, they're there. But there are also significant benefits to persistent, continued sinning that we would love to have if we possibly could as well. Not sinning is often presented as a drawback to Christianity. Now, you, you might be here, as a, you might be going on with God, strong in your faith, however you want to put it, but still, in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, Look, think of all those things I haven't done that I could have done, all those people I could have slept with, all those Friday nights, fueled with different substances, all those jokes I could have got a good laugh out of the office, apart from that rude punchline, all the career advancement I could have had if I'd just been a little bit dishonest. So it's like those are the drawbacks in our mind to these things. Not sinning is seen as this regrettable sacrifice of being a Christian. If only we could do both. But actually most of us know that even though we play funny games with grace, we can't really, and so heaven probably wins it, so we'll go with that. And that's sometimes how we think about this stuff. I'll tell you, if that's anywhere near where you're at at the moment and you're thinking on sin, you have had the wool well and truly pulled over your eyes. So I take it as my task today to pull the wool back from over your eyes to be able to see things clearly because you've been duped. And I don't mean that to say you're stupid. Far from it. Because you see, this is the kind of message that we're fed every day through the culture around us, through the public, popular culture we see. Actually, sin's good. It's generally agreed, I suppose, in the culture around us, we shouldn't do bad things, but bad things are generally acknowledged to be way cooler than good things. That's how people talk and people, people think, really. Look at the movies that we look at. Think of the kind of, anti-heroes we often get in most of our heroes in the movies throughout the years have had significantly wayward moral compasses I don't know if you recognize that right going way back you've got James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause you move forward you've got Clint Eastwood in countless westerns who just goes and shoots loads of people you know James Bond maybe the the most wayward morally but the most heroic at the same time got Wolverine got even Hannibal Lecter we root for the sinner and in many ways, it's their sin that draws us in to watch those films and to enjoy those films. Stuff's ingrained in us. Think of the slang that is used around us. It might not be words you use, but what are the words that we use for what's good? It's bad. It's wicked. Sick. Now, I'm not necessarily having to go and say you can't say things like that, but we need to stop and think well, what's going on here, actually? Our language is very, very telling. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it says in the Bible, what's it saying? What it's saying is this. Deep down, we seem to have been convinced that in a strange way, bad is good. And on the reverse, on the other side, we've also been convinced that good is bad. Do you know what? If your goal here today is to have a Hollywood biopic made of your life, okay, if you think that's what I'd like to do before I die, How do you do it? Well, I can tell you how you do it. I'm not recommending you to do this, but I'll tell you how you could do it, is be as immoral as you possibly can. Probably kill a load of people. That's how to get a biopic made of your life. Mesrine. don't know if anyone's seen that one. Be like the Craze, or like the great train robber. They'll get films made of them. Tell you what you shouldn't do if you want a film made of your life. Live a virtuous life, that's what you shouldn't do. A couple sneak through the gaps, don't they? You've got kind of Gandhi, you've got Mandela, Mother Teresa might even have had a TV drama, possibly. You never know. But what do they do in those films? Well, What they try to do is they spice them up by implying some dark secret. As if, because this person's so good, it's not quite interesting enough for us, really. Goodness is boring. That's the message. It's what unimaginative, repressed people do. If we were truly free from the constraints put on us by society and our pesky consciences, you know what? We'd sin lots, and the message is we love it. It's what we're told. We've got to recognise this right off. That's there. That's been told to us every day. It's a lie. (coughs) It's a dirty, destructive lie. The one who's most concerned about you the one who loves you more than anyone else does, was once asked what he would like his dear children to ask him for themselves. His answer was this, to have your needs met and to be kept safe from the ravages of sin. That's what Jesus said. God's not just a just judge who knows he must punish sin. No, he's the all-wise God who sees very clearly the devastation that sin's caused and continues to cause in our lives. And he longs for his dear children to be free from it. He doesn't secretly think, if only I wasn't so just, my children could really have a good time and sin lots and still know me. No, he doesn't think like that. He knows sin destroys us. I might be the only voice that you will hear this week that will tell you this but we need to hear it because we're being bombarded with other stuff and it ruins our thinking. Let's reflect on this a little bit more by looking at the story in the Bible where probably this is made most clear, the effects, the disastrous effects of sin. And it's the story where sin first appears in the Bible. It's the very, very beginning uh, in the Genesis story, in the, in the story of the fall. Now, many of you know the basics of the story. God makes the world. world is perfect. People are sinless. They have a perfect relationship with God. Yet they sin. They disobey God. And from that point the story charts then, I think, three main consequences that sin has, all of which are awful. Number one, sin separates us from God. Genesis three twenty-three. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Now, if you know the story, you, you'll kind of you'll be able to identify with this, but the garden was the place that represented the place where humans and God were totally together, like that. God walked in the garden. He talked with them in the garden. It was a place of intimacy. They were at home with each other. And therefore, as they're banished from the garden, what's being said there is God saying, that relationship is now over. There is now separation, not intimacy. And you know what? That is a very, very serious problem when you consider that human beings like us were designed in the very way we are to relate to God. That's how we were designed. We were designed with our kind of mental faculties and our physical bodies and our emotional uh, things and the spiritual things, the way those things combine. We were designed to relate to God. The one thing we cannot do because of our sin. That's serious. Our fullest joy is found in finding him, in being in a close relationship with him, and suddenly our sin separates us from him. Because This wasn't just what sin did once, it's in the very nature of sin to do it all the time. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 to 2, Isaiah says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities, which means your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates us from the God we were made to be close to. Sin destroys us. That's the first one. Second one is this. Sin destroys our relationships with each other. Happens in two ways in the Genesis account, I think. First of all, we see Genesis 3 verse 7. They've just disobeyed God and it says this. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, just to make clear... Uh, In case you're getting worried, I'm not going to go for a return to naturism or anything like that. Um, But what was going on in the garden here, what was happening was before sin came in, these guys were utterly comfortable in every way in each other's presence. They were naked and felt no problem with that. And I think what that speaks of to us is a level of trust and mutual respect and honesty that was just natural to them. The minute they sin, before God says anything... What happens? Well, suddenly the ease of relationships broken. They start second guessing each other. What, what does he think of me? What does she think of me? What happens is lack of trust and suspicion now sneak into human relationships. We're very familiar with them, aren't we? They weren't. Sin did it. Then this is what happens next. A couple of verses later, Genesis 3, 11 to 12. God says, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I have commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Here we have the start of a game. It's a game that many of us play, I presume, probably particularly if you're married. It's called the blame game. And uh, <laughs> I was preparing this thing uh, had lots of stories of the blame game in operation in my life. I think, yeah, it's, good. it's a game, it's fun, isn't it? I know for me, it's an absolute nightmare. And I do it, I cause the problem, but suddenly something comes, I've done it, I've completely done it. Actually, but you did this. It doesn't matter, it's irrelevant, I did that myself. Let the blame go, we play it, we play it all the time. It causes havoc. Before they lived in perfect harmony, now they're dobbing each other in to save their own necks. So we've got this, we've got in this story sin, then we've got the breakdown of trust and now a readiness to attribute blame rather than own up to our own faults surely there we have the seeds of every relationship breakdown that's ever happened in history. Think about it. Think about how sin spoils our relationships. Our relationships with our friends, causing distance where there should be mutual help. With our families, causing arguments where there should be peace. With our partners, causing mistrust and suspicion where there should be love and companionship. With our kids, causing anger and cutting criticism when there should be compassion and encouragement. Sin ruins our relationships. Sin destroys us. Third thing we see in the story, and I'm not saying it's the worst thing, but it's the thing I think that hits me hardest in this, is that also sin corrupts and degrades us as we sin. It's a direct effect on our lives and who we are, actually. The lie all around us is basically this, that if we sin, we will become greater. We might not be so pious. We might even hurt a few people, but we will be the authentic noble savage, the authentic human being carving our course through uh, our lives and through the world. The reality is completely the opposite. As we sin, we become less. We are degraded. We are shrunk. We don't see this so much in Genesis story through the first sinners, Adam and Eve. But we see it very clearly in the, the first individual to be born into a world of sin. Genesis 4, it talks about the first uh, son of Adam and Eve, the first person born into a world of sin, Cain. We don't have time to turn to it now. Some of you will know it. Feel free to go to it at it your leisure. But what do we see when we see the first one, the product of sin? Is he, is he noble? Is he great? Is he a kind of James Dean or a James Bond or something like that? Now you know what? Cain, is a stingy, petulant, eagerly angered bonehead. That's who Cain is. Read the story, you can find it. He is incredibly unattractive, not least when he decides to murder his brother in cold blood for jealousy, for nothing. He's not made noble. He's shrunk. He's not wise and enlightened. He's small and pathetic and evil. It's what sin does to every single one of us. In uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul undergoes uh, perhaps the most thorough analysis and examination of sin that there is in the whole of Scripture. And what he does is, he first of all, uh, in Romans one twenty one he boils it down. He says, well, what is sin? What's the heart of sin? What's the kernel at the heart of all this stuff? And he says that actually sin at its heart is the refusal to glorify God. That's what he says about sin. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And that's what sin is. That's what it's hard what it is. Same message as the story in, in Genesis. Remember what the snake says. Eat from the tree, because then you're no good and bad, and you'll be like God. They knew God. They knew he was there, but they didn't glorify him as God. They didn't say, well, no, no, stop. He's God. He told us to do this. He's God. And I said, no, nah, I want to be God. That's what sin is. Not valuing God appropriately, and instead trying to take his place. Now, You might expect then, having Paul's very concisely summed up the heart of sin, you might think, well, what he's going to do now is he'll uh, describe how from that attitude it overflows in our lives into more obvious outward sins, and then the conclusion is we get punished for that stuff. It's probably how you'd imagine it to go. And it does, kind of, but Paul does something subtly but profoundly different in Romans 1. Yeah, he, he outlines some obvious external sins that we could do as a result of our refusal to glorify God. But he presents them not as the cause of punishment, but as the punishment itself. We're punished for our evil hearts by the fact that God lets us sin. Because sin's so bad for us. I'll give you examples <laughs> just to whiz through. Romans 1, 24. Therefore, because I refuse to glorify God, because they did... God gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Romans 1.26, because of this, our refusal to glorify God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Romans 1.28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The visible sins that we see prevalent in our society, and sadly so often in our own lives, are not just the cause of our punishment. In many cases, they are the punishment itself. Even for us as Christians, God's wrath is on, on the whole of the human race, and there's residual effects even for us who are forgiven. And we see these things happening. As we've pursued our own glorification as a race, as we try to set ourselves up as God, God judges us. And his judgment starts now. What he does is he withdraws the protecting hand of legislation, of societal disapproval, even allowing our consciences to become completely seared. And he gives us over to the things we want, knowing, horrified, but knowing those things are going to degrade us, those things are going to make us less. I can't think of a worse punishment. It's a horror. But maybe what's most horrific is we revel in it. We're proud of the things that are destroying us. Look at this all around us. But it's not just around us, it's in us as well. It's like we've been turned into pigs and we laugh at the people walking past because they can't enjoy the mud like we will. It's like we've been turned into dogs and we'll mock the humans around us who can control their instincts, their tempers, their sexual urges, whatever it is. Don't be fooled. Sin makes you smaller. It degrades you. It makes you less than you should be. It's awful. It's the cause of the curse, but in a sense, it's the curse itself. If only we'd have God's perspective, we'd realise that just as we desperately need our next meal, we also desperately need to be rescued from the ravages of sin. It's a very real respect in which every time I sin. It's like I'm drinking poison. Poison that destroys me and all that's most dear to me. The best of both worlds is not to know God and get to heaven, but to sin as much as we can till we get there. and get there with kind of a wink, no, I cheated the system. Fantastic. That's not the best of both worlds. The best of both worlds is that we know God as our Father through Jesus and we're saved from the poison. That we receive the antidote for what we've done and what we've drunk and we don't drink anymore. And the wonderful news of Christianity is we can know this. We can truly be rescued from the awful effects of our sin. Both things we've done and helping us more and more in the future. So in the time left that we have, I want to then relate this then quickly to the prayer, forgive us our sins and forgive those who sin against us. How then on the basis of all that should we pray this prayer? I think to pray it we need to understand two things. That's what we need to do and the first might sound a little bit strange but it's absolutely vital. To come before God and pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As Christians, we must recognise that we've already been forgiven. We've got to do that or this whole thing is going to get very, very skewiff very quickly. And actually, we see this in the prayer. This is not, it might sound odd in the way it's, it, it comes up. We'll come back to that in a minute. But you see it in the prayer. Look at the order of the pra- prayer. The, the Lord's Prayer would suggest that the only people who can pray, forgive us our sins are people who can call God their Father. seems to be what you see in the Lord's Prayer. And I'll be clear, I've said this before, I'll say it again. That's not everyone. I know there's a case in which God made everyone, and so in that case, he's a bit like a father to everyone. But that's not what Jesus meant by Father. That's not what shocked the Jewish establishment when Jesus said, Abba, Father, to God. Now, there's a level of intimacy here that for us, naturally, we could never expect. As sinful individuals, we could never approach God with this level of relationship and intimacy because our sins have separated us from God. That's what we saw earlier. No, naturally, on the basis of how we've lived, the only way we would relate to God is as our judge. It's not a very attractive prayer. My judge, well, how would that prayer go? Well, no, we wouldn't expect a kind of hug from him. We'd expect judgment from him on the basis of who we are and how we've lived. To be in relationship with God, we need our sins to be forgiven. We need them washed away. We need them to be seen as inadmissible evidence in the court of heaven. Otherwise, we just can't call God our Father. And therefore, the only way that prayer is possible is because Jesus himself paid that punishment to deal with our sins. I've been asked, again, recently asked this on Alpha, well, how could one guy dying which was very, it was terrible, it was awful, but like for six hours on a cross and a day before getting beaten up and stuff, how could that equate to the entire human race uh, and save them all? How does that work? The balance doesn't seem on there. Some of us may have seen the film The Passion of the Christ or know a little bit about Roman crucifixion and the horrors that went on. But however big those horrors are, how how does one guy with those physical beatings equate to, well, That's enough to pay for the sins of the whole world. The reason is this, is that what we see in crucifixion, all the the horrible film that it is, but I think helpful, The Passion of the Christ, it's, it's hard to watch. You don't see the full punishment there. You see a graphic picture leading towards what was really going on spiritually to Jesus. And it wasn't less than that. It was far, far more. And we, I think we see it most clear as Jesus calls out on the cross, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Now think about that for a second. Jesus is the only one who could always say my father. On the basis of what he did, he didn't need someone to fix a problem for him. He just came in naturally, my father, well of course he's my father. And as he's on the cross, he starts praying as normal, my father, my father. But then suddenly he realises his father's gone. His father's absent, he's disappeared. The same separation that Adam and Eve knew as they were banished from that garden. The same separation that each of us feel as we experience the kind of existential angst or, or meaninglessness or fear that we have in our lives separate from God. But suddenly it encroaches on Jesus. And actually, he's no longer seeing God as his father. The horror suddenly is his judge infinite individual jesus fully god to experience what in essence on the cross was the essence of hell well i'll tell you what that's enough for everyone an infinite being sacrificed for as many finite beings like us as there could be and that's what jesus knew a horrible thing he wasn't judged for anything he'd done but for the sins of the whole world he paid our penalty and if you're not a christian here or you're not even sure whether you're a christian You're thinking, well, look, I know my sin's a problem. Different suggestions what to do with it. What should I do with my sin? You've got two choices. I think there's only two. One is you deal with it yourself. If you choose that, if you want my opinion on the matter, sadly, I think that your sin will destroy you, both in this life and in the next life. The second way, and I think it's the only other way, is to give it to Jesus. He's paid the punishment already once and for all, and you can know total forgiveness today. If you choose to trust Jesus today, you could say to him, maybe for the first time, forgive me my trespasses, forgive me my sins, and you could know him saying, they're forgiven. Yes, I answer your prayer, you are forgiven. And a sign of that forgiveness could be that you then relate to God not primarily as your judge but as your father you could start praying this prayer as we've been explaining it over the last 5 weeks maybe for some of you uh, you've come to this you've been listening you think yeah but I've tried this prayer over and over again I just don't get it it doesn't make sense to me it doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church it doesn't matter how many times you've heard a sermon if you've not given your life to Jesus and said, Jesus is Lord, I give it to you, I trust you, I follow you, have my sin. I will not try now anymore to make it better with God. to think I can earn his approval. If you've not done that in your heart, you need to do it. That's the thing. That's the important thing. And for those who take that offer, and actually for those of us who are already Christians who took that offer a long time ago, it's important to notice this. That relationship we have with our Father is not in doubt every time we come to pray. For some, we'd write this prayer slightly differently. For some, if we were judging on how we normally pray, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, would run like this. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. Do you know what I mean by that? We come before God, we think, I want to pray But no, first of all, I need to make sure I'm confessed up to the eyeballs. Because otherwise, my status as child is up in the air. Look, God, you have sit there 10 minutes. Is there anything I need to confess for? Well, there's that, there's that. I might as well confess that as well. Phew, I'm done, Father. And our point is this. We think that our status as children of God depends on our repeated confessions. It doesn't. It depends on Jesus' death on the cross that was done once for all 2,000 years ago. You can never be removed from God's family once you've come into God's family. It does not depend on whether you're up to date with your confessions of sin. I've got a practical advice for you in this. You know, I've tried this, I tried this for a while and it was quite tricky for a while actually to get myself out of a habit. But I'd recommend when you come to God to pray to resist the urge to start your prayer times with confession. Just resist the urge. Now, obviously, there are times where there's sins weighing on our mind and we know the Holy Spirit's poking stuff and we know it. We just get rid of it straight away. We say, sorry, that can be any time, whenever in the day. Wherever you are, just do it. And he says, I forgive you. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. However, we don't need to spend the first 10, 20 minutes digging around for ages for every memory of every possible thing we might have done wrong since we last confessed our sins. No, we come before God, we rush in because he's our father, we praise him, we start praying for his kingdom, we, we know he loves us, so we want, he's like, give us our daily bread, Lord, we need this. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is well capable of then saying, yeah, but there's this. And then we say, and you're God, and I'm sorry. Oh yeah, and you're my father, I'm forgiven. That's how we do I'd encourage that as a, as a piece of advice for praying. I think it, if your prayers it's got too unbalanced in that way, I think it's helpful. But obviously, with all this said, we do need to have another application point because it does leave the rather obvious question open. Why bother asking God to forgive us our sins if our sins are already forgiven? So the first thing we need to know as we pray this prayer is we're already forgiven. Secondly, we need to know we still need to come before God and say, forgive us our sins as we as we forgive others. Why? Well, I think the key to understanding this, as with so much in this prayer, is to understand who we're talking to. And it's, who are we talking to? We know this. Who are we talking to? Our father. We're coming to our father. Just reflect for a minute on your relationship with your father as a child, or if you're a parent, your relationship with your kid. Aren't there times when you know your kids have done something wrong, or your dad knew you'd done something wrong, and a the father in those cases had clearly, he wasn't angry about it, he wasn't sulking in the corner somewhere. He'd forgiven you, or you'd forgiven your kids, depending which way around you look at it, but where, as the kid comes up and says, Dad, I'm sorry. On a father, doesn't a smile appear on a father's face at that point? Doesn't a father still appreciate that? Doesn't a father still like that? Even though the kid's forgiven before, Dads love to hear their kids come to them to repent, to say sorry when they've done something wrong. And I think there are two reasons for that with earthly fathers, and I think they're both relevant to why we as children who are forgiven already should still come before our father and ask for forgiveness. And the first is this. I think when a forgiven child asks forgiveness of his father, it's a way of re-acknowledging that their father is right and that they're restating their trust in him. That's important. When we sin, what we are doing, although we'll sugarcoat this and we'll think of other things that it could be, but this is what we're doing. We're saying to God, you're wrong. I don't trust you. That's what you're saying if you sin. That's what I'm saying when I sin. I think, oh no, it's complicated. No, it really was as simple as that. You're wrong. You told me this is bad for me. It's not. It's good for me. I'm going to do it. I don't trust you. And coming and asking him for forgiveness is basically restating our trust in our father and telling him we acknowledge again that he is right. God loves that, not least because he knows that trusting him is going to lead us to joy in our lives. That's one reason. Second reason is this. A forgiven child asking forgiveness of his father is basically coming to his father or her father for help to change and live differently in the future. If we come and ask for forgiveness, it implies we want to help. We want help to stop doing this stuff in the future. Now, the next prayer in this, uh, in this uh, next request in this prayer makes this more explicit. And I don't really want to tread on Jonathan's toes in a couple of weeks about leaders not into temptation. But all I'd say is this on this one: it will be very difficult for us to change and become more like Jesus if we don't admit we've done anything wrong when we sin and haven't done anything that's worth forgiving. As we repent of our sins daily, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. As we say, forgive me for this, Lord. I'll tell you what you will say first. I forgive you. You're forgiven. But then we need to listen to what he's going to say next. Of And do you know what? Why don't you do things like this now on? This will help you. Why don't you actually just stop doing that altogether? Or Why have you thought about this? Or have you thought about this? We listen to the Holy Spirit. Cause as we come, forgive us. We're thinking ahead. We want to change, Lord. And this is absolutely vital, because even though the forgiveness we receive in Jesus is absolutely thorough and full, I'm not lessening in any way the work of the cross. No, it's thorough forgiveness on the cross. But actually, that does not mean that it automatically covers every effect of sin in our lives. You know what? We can be totally forgiven in relationship with God, all of that stuff, and still degrade ourselves and hurt others around us through our sin. The sins we do, even as Christians, are still venomous poison. So when we come to God and ask him to forgive us, what we're saying is this, God, we are so sorry. Please don't let these sins take root in my life in such a way that they become habits that then define me and shrink me and make me less than I was made to be. Praying forgive me is like drawing a line in the sand and saying, I want that mistake to stop right here. I don't want it to infect my whole life. I don't want it to to infect those around me, limit its damage on me and on those around me by helping me to change and live differently. Actually, it's as we come daily and regularly to repent of our sins, often that God's grace is poured out on us to sanctify us which is a biblical word for saying, to make us more like Jesus, to sin less. Very famous verse, but it's a, it's a great one for us as we draw to a close. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yeah, we knew that, he did it on the cross. And to cleanse us from all wickedness. There's grace for us as we come and pray, Father, forgive us. Now, as I conclude, I'm, I'm aware that there is a glaring omission from this talk. I haven't had any time to deal with the clause at the end of the verse, as we forgive those who sin against us. And I, I apologise for that. I knew that in my notes before. We weren't going to have time for that. It's an important clause. It's important to, to look at that. And if you're interested in that, if you're worried about that, it's good to talk to someone and do some study on that. I could definitely recommend you some books and some sermons on that one. All I would say on it is this. I'd like to flag up that really and maybe it's all that needs to be said for the moment, unforgiveness is a sin like getting drunk or having sex with someone you're not married to. It's a sin. Actually, uh, well, it's important to say we're not forgiven because we forgive others. We're forgiven because of God's grace. However, as we've been forgiven, we are expected to forgive other people. You know, well, that seems pretty fair enough to me. But it's not just fair enough. It's actually in line with all I've said why does God want us to forgive other people? Well, because actually, unforgiveness, maybe most pointedly, more than other sins, is a poison. And it destroys us. And God doesn't want us to be corrupted and defiled by it. So we, as we're forgiven, we forgive others. But I ain't got any time to say any more on that. So I'm going to finish. And as I finish, I want to wrap up and just urge you to do two things. They're not new. They're just recapping on things we said. I want to drive them home because they're vital for us. Jesus thought they were vital because they're in his model prayer. Here they are. Number one, please can we take sin seriously in our lives? Never, never, never use grace as an excuse to sin. You know what? We can use grace when we look at the past, at past sins. Someone says, "What about that?" And I did it last week. You say, "Grace, God's grace covers it." I'm sorry, I've changed. But if we ever look to the future and use grace to cover something we're planning to do, you know what? We're being fools. If we're doing that, we're choosing to become shrunk, corrupt, corrupted, and less than we should be. We're choosing voluntarily to drink poison and then using some sort of theological structure to justify it as we destroy ourselves. Take sin seriously. If you sin tomorrow, that sin you, some of you might have in your mind, if you do it, will you still go to heaven? Yes, if you're a Christian, you will. But I tell you, why walk into heaven small and shrunk when you can start being who you were made to be today a little bit more? Sin is not cool. It is not noble. It's not a sign of your authentic humanity. It is self-destruction. As a church, can we commit together to take it incredibly seriously, fight it in our own lives, and help each other to get over it in their lives? Can we do that? final thing second thing as we seek to do that let's daily come before God and ask forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us let's do it knowing we're forgiven by Jesus not by our repeated confessions but at the same time using this as a statement of intent a declaration of our desire to live God's way and reject our own and we know that every time we come and pray it our father responds immediately I forgive you and you know what he does then He gives you some antidote to the poison. His grace comes to cleanse you from all unrighteousness.